Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The voice of the West Wing, I felt, has always been powerful. It has always been a shining light that has challenged ourselves as citizens, as individuals, but also challenged America as a whole to be the best version of itself. And to be able to come back now and approach it again, again, through the lens of experience of all of what we've gone through, being able to have the words come to life again, I think uh, is powerful, is poignant, and is needed. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and on today's episode, we'll welcome psych actor Dulé Hill, who was Emmy-nominated in 2002 for his work on The West Wing, and will be joining us to chat about HBO Max's West Wing reunion special, uh, as well as answer a few of our random inquiries as part of the AV Club's 11 Questions franchise. Uh, but before we get to that, I am joined by a voice that you may recognize if you listen to our Film Club podcast, our incredible and likely exhausted film editor, A.A. Dowd. Hey, Dowd, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned Dowd is likely exhausted because he he just came out of the the marathon that is the New York Film Festival, which, uh, of course, was entirely virtual this year, which is a completely new experience for the most part. Uh, what, I guess before we get into the things you loved from there, what was what was it like attending this virtual festival? Well, it's interesting. I, I don't necessarily have a huge point of comparison with the New York Film Festival because New York is not a festival that I ever cover extensively or ever have for the site. Normally, I mean, the thing about New York is that it's it's a highly curated festival. And usually the lineup at New York is made up of films that have previously played at a number of other festivals, including Cannes, including uh, Toronto, including Venice. Um, now, most years I go to to Sundance, to Cannes, to Toronto. So I ended up catching a lot of the films that play New York. So we will usually, in terms of coverage at the AV Club, often what we'll do is we'll just, you know, we'll end up covering one large title. I, I flew out last year to see The Irishman, for example, the opening night film. So uh, it's not, I, I don't, again, I don't necessarily have a point of reference. I have to imagine that that covering New York is always kind of exhausting because it is a little bit longer than your average film festival. It's um, It generally runs about three and a half weeks. This year it happened to, I mean, it, this is true every year, I guess, it, it falls right after Toronto. So I sort of rolled straight from Toronto coverage right into covering New York for three weeks. And um, yeah, boy, are my arms tired, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, and we actually ran a, a piece recently um, from one of our regular contributors, Mike D'Angelo, uh, about virtual film festivals and, and kind of, you know, obviously this horror show that is 2020 has resulted in a lot of a lot of things having to be canceled uh, live events which is really unfortunate but there's there's some good stuff in terms of um access like you mentioned like you were able to attend so much more of this festival than you would have otherwise what are what are your feelings about potentially having these festivals go more virtual or at least have virtual offerings when things get back to at least relative normality i think it's great as an option 
I, I mean, I, I do understand that there are costs that not everyone has taken into consideration when when kind of championing this idea, which is that um, in terms of hosting these films online for people to watch, it can actually be very pricey for film festivals, which is one reason I think that they haven't embraced this before now. You know, this is kind of a necessity is the mother of invention thing this year where it's like they sort of had to do this. It was either it was either go mostly virtual or cancel entirely, you know. So I've. um I, yes, I really do appreciate the, the fact that it has opened – it has kind of uh, – there's a slightly more democratic quality to the film festivals this year because people – you don't have to be in the business necessarily and you don't have to be – you don't have to be able to afford a flight and a hotel to see some of these movies. I love that aspect of it. I will always, of course, also love the whole film festival experience, um, the, uh, the in-person film festival experience, I should say, because film festivals aren't just about the movies. They're also about – traveling to this city and and be, being there in person and talking to other cinephiles and they are these kind of communal experiences and obviously you're not going to get that with the virtual side of it but I do I do appreciate the ability that the way that that going virtual has opened up these fests to other people I mean if you like with, with New York here if, if you my understanding is that so long as you live at least in the United States you could live anywhere in the country and you could buy a ticket a virtual ticket to one of these movies and I, I think that's great yeah, I mean, I and certainly, you know, obviously there's the benefit of seeing it on a big screen and, as you mentioned, seeing it with other people and being able to discuss it afterwards, which we certainly all miss. But I know uh, my my husband and I looked into actually just renting out an entire theater um, and in the L.A. area, uh, you can do that actually if you travel about an hour outside the city for 150 bucks. Um, so we've contemplated just renting out our own theater to watch something just to get that experience again soon, even if it's just the two of us. That's really not so bad, money-wise, no. honestly. I, I, mean, I, I, know, it's I, what I you would consider spend... doing it myself, you know? Yeah, it, it's what you would spend, you know, if you went to dinner beforehand and got a couple drinks and such. Like, you'd get yeah. close to that anyway. So, uh, you know, we're all looking for ways to to ingest new content. But you got to see a lot. Um, so I, I'd love yeah. to kind of have you run down some of the highlights. Uh, what, were the, what were the films that stood out to you the most uh, that you saw? over this in- incredibly uh, dense uh, couple weeks. Yeah. Um, I, well, I should start by saying that uh, there were a few films that played New York this year that I actually did see a- at other film festivals. Toronto was right before New York. So films like Nomadland and The Disciple and MLK FBI, those all played at Toronto. So I caught those there. Um, there's also Garrett Bradley's Time, a pretty wonderful new documentary that you can see you can actually stream from home now. It's in general release now. I think actually, I think uh, I think it it's in theaters as well as on demand. But uh, so I'm not going to cover any of the films that played New York that that I caught at other film festivals. I'd like to just start, sort of talk about ones that I saw at New York specifically. So uh, I guess I'll start by talking about the Steve McQueen films that played this year at New York. There were actually three of them. And they're all part of McQueen's uh, – so McQueen is moving into television, to British television, with a series called Small Acts. And uh, this is a miniseries that will play on BBC television and then will also be available in the States on on, on Amazon Prime. I think uh, I think probably later this year I think is what they're discussing. I know that it, they premiere – they premiere on the BBC in November, but uh, they're all feature length. And obviously we you, we can quibble about what qualifies as television, what qualifies as film. I know that that's an ongoing conversation and those lines are blurring more and more these days. But these are all feature length and they all do play perfectly fine as standalone movies. The series has been set up as this anthology and it's all about the West Indian community of London 
and uh, basically from any any time from the 60s through the 80s, basically. And uh, there are six different episodes. Three of them premiered at the New York Film Festival, uh, including the opening night film, which is called Lover's Rock, which is about uh, these these reggae parties that would happen in the 1980s that became these places where uh, black Londoners could go and they could, they could dance and party and they weren't necessarily always allowed into the predominantly white dance clubs in London. So this was this alternative space that they kind of carved out. And all three of the, of the films that they showed at the New York film festival, I think were, were at least, um, at least very engrossing. Uh, the, the, yeah, again, Lover's Rock was one of them. A film called Mangrove that was a uh, sort of a courtroom drama about, very similar, in fact, to Trial of the Chicago 7 in some ways, was about these activists who were basically put on trial in the, in the 70s, or sorry, in the late 60s for when the police basically, uh, they were, they were peacefully, peacefully protesting and the police basically brought violence into the situation. So uh, that was Mangrove. And then there's Red, White, and Blue, which stars John Boyega as a sort of a young college graduate who decides that he's going to join the police force in London and try to sort of make a difference from the inside and uh, work to build some new new trust between the black community in London and the police and uh, discovers perhaps predictably that um, there's a lot of racism in the London police force in the 1980s. Um, surprise, surprise. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so all three are very good. I, I haven't seen the other three episodes of the series, but, uh, and, and, and again, I think you, we can have our conversations about is this television, is this movies, but I think that these really make a, a very strong case for, um, for hiring a, a filmmaker as good as Steve McQueen. He's the director of 12 Years a Slave and Widows and Shame, uh, for hiring them to do television and giving them some freedom because I understand this was a very, This was an ambitious project, and uh, I think the results end up speaking for themselves. Yeah, it's super interesting because you look at stuff like Black Mirror or the Romanovs, where these really are just films of varying lengths that, Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, are are packaged as a TV show, but really would be movies or at least TV movies considered if if they were all running on a a network. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, honestly, these... um, all three of these could play in the States as theatrical films, if that was the thing right now. Um, this is actually kind of a perfect time to be experimenting with this because these are films that um, that there are very few films at all playing in theaters right now. But I think these would work perfectly well as standalone movies, honestly. They're, they're sort of thematically linked, but not. there's no overlap in terms of story or characters. Amazing. Well, what's another one that you loved? Okay, so uh, there is a Norwegian nature documentary called Gunda that I liked a lot. And it's basically a documentary about a farm uh, in Norway and specifically about this this sow and her piglets. And I, I know that probably sounds really cute and some of it is cute, <laughs> but it's also uh, like a really a, like kind of a, a harsh documentary about farm life as well and about what that means for being an animal on a farm. Um, I actually thought a lot watching it. Uh, the film, the film is shot in, uh, shot in this very crisp black and white and there are no talking heads. There's no spoken human language in it at all. It really is just immersing us in the life of this pig and, and, and her offspring. And I thought a lot of a series of documentaries that were made over the last decade by Harvard's sensory ethnography lab, films like Leviathan and Sweetgrass, these sort of immersive nature documentaries that, that take us like basically ground level, or in the case of Leviathan, like sea level into the lives of these animals, basically. And this one is just 
beautifully shot and it, it really is i mean you do have to sort of uh, acclimate yourself to the rhythms of it but um it's beautifully shot and it's and it's really uh it ends up being actually rather heartbreaking if you've spent any time on a farm i think you can probably guess why but i won't say anything more about that but fair um yeah it, it, it just you describing it makes me like feel guilty about <laughs> eating lunch in a second <laughs> <laughs> while you're having pork <laughs> I mean, not anymore. <laughs> but that's important. I mean, these are important things yeah. for us to to be aware of, and and obviously, you know, everything we do is complicated. If the good place taught us anything, um, you know, you can't yeah. you can't do anything without without a you know just completely destroying the earth. Apparently, but it, it's important for us to think about. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so another one that I really liked is Days, and it's uh, the new movie from Siming Lang. He's the Taiwanese filmmaker who made um, What Time Is It There and Goodbye Dragon Inn. Actually, a very prolific filmmaker has been working steadily for about, I mean, gosh, at this point, probably about 30 years. And uh, he's kind of one of the world masters of slow cinema. He, he's the type of filmmaker who um, one of his regular kind of modes of, of, of filmmaking is he'll just kind of set up the camera and, you know, sort of artfully compose his frame and just watch and just just watch a particular space or a particular character for minutes on end. Uh, he is he's a big fan of the long take. And uh, Days is his first narrative film in like seven years. His last film, Stray Dogs, sort of felt like a little bit like a swan song in that respect. And he's worked steadily in the years since. He's made short films. He's made a couple documentaries. Uh, and he's done sort of increasingly avant-garde films that sort of dispense with plot altogether. So Days is kind of a return for him to narrative filmmaking. I would I use that loosely because it's the you know I mean the plot is about as bare bones as you can get, and like Gunda, there is there is basically no dialogue in this film. The only time people speak to each other, he doesn't even subtitle the dialogue, which is a first for Sai. And the film just sort of follows. Uh, it's basically about a rendezvous between these two men in a in a Hong Kong hotel, and one of them is played by Sai's sort of regular muse who has appeared in every single one of his films, as far as I know, over the past 30 years or so. His name is um, Lee Kang Sheng, and he plays this man who is sort of suffering from this unidentified ailment. And the other character is this young sex worker from Laos. And uh, they meet in this hotel room, and it's just this beautiful film about loneliness and connection. And um, even more so than Gunda, I think this is a movie that requires that you kind of uh, you kind of settle into its rhythms. You know, uh, very early on, you're going to need you, you sort of realize that this is a film that's not going to have a lot of cutting, that we are going to be spending a lot of time just sort of occupying the space of these characters. And Sai is really good at this. I, I think he's made better films in this mode before, but I, I'm really glad to have him back personally. Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating, and uh, it's intriguing the the use of subtitles or not, and how that can change an experience. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so another one that I really liked is On the Rocks. It's the new Sofia Coppola film. It's actually her first. Uh, it's it's sort of her reunion with Bill Murray, who she worked with in Lost in Translation in two thousand three, sort of uh, the film that scored both of them Oscar nominations. And uh, this is a very different film in some ways, but I think also kind of a sort of a spiritual sequel in others. It, the star of the film is actually Rashida Jones. She plays this writer in New York. Uh, who becomes convinced that her businessman husband, played by Marlon Wayans, is cheating on her. And Murray plays her father. Uh, he's this kind of aging playboy who's been um, 
sort of living life on his own terms his entire life. You know, he's in his 70s at this point. And he talks her into launching this amateur investigation into her husband. So the two of them are kind of running around town spying on her husband. Um, It's definitely Coppola's least dreamy film. I would say. I mean, one of the things I love about Sofia Coppola's work generally is that it has this very dreamy, sensual quality about it. You know, she, she has the she, she has a uh, an affinity for the, the the perfect needle drop, and there's this gauzy sensuality about her films. And a lot of that is not present in this film, but I think that's appropriate because it ends up being this movie about the point in your life when the when the kind of uh, when the kind of brilliant emotions of your youth are are, are becoming harder and harder to access and you to, to access and you're kind of um, you're kind of settling into into kind of some of the some of the more the, the boredom I guess I would say of of stable domestic life um, but it has this really laid back charm that I found kind of irresistible and Murray is a real blast in it um, Patrick what uh, what do you think of Sofia Coppola's work I mean I I. It, it's funny because it's 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 her work is stuff that I've appreciated as time has gone on. I think uh, when I first saw Lost in Translation, it, it just like the quietness of it wasn't. I wasn't in the place in my life for for wanting and appreciating a, a, a quietness like that. Um, but when I've revisited that piece and and some of her other work um, that is less quiet, uh, I I find there's just so many moments. I think that happens with age that you, you start to appreciate things in a way that you didn't when you were younger. And that certainly is one of those. And it's interesting. I mean, you say, talk about appreciating something as you get older too. I mean, this is very much Coppola acknowledging, I think the degree to which she's gotten older herself. I mean, she is, she, she basically is a few years younger than Bill Murray was when he appeared in Lost in Translation at this point. Which so, is crazy. Uh, it is crazy, isn't it? Because we're not that old. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, Lost in Translation was widely thought to be at least quasi autobiographical, in that uh, in that Scarlett Johansson was playing a character who, I mean, she was married to this young hotshot director, as Coppola was when she was younger. She was married to Spike Jones for a while, so people were kind of have have looked at Lost in Translation for a long time as something that's at least. Um, that's that, that's at least quasi autobiographical, and I think you could probably do the same with On the Rocks. I mean, Jones's character is she's not a filmmaker, but she's a writer, and she has two daughters, which Coppola also has two daughters. So um, I think it's really interesting to look at it through that lens. And uh, if you're a Bill Murray fan, I think it's definitely worth seeing. The film is available, I think, uh, next week on Apple TV Plus. It's it, it it's been doing a kind of limited theatrical run, but if you are not interested in going to a movie theater right now, then you can you can see it on Apple TV. Finally, Apple TV Plus has something worth subscribing for. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the final film that I'd like to, to to sort of single out is this film called Undine. And uh, it's the latest drama from this the German filmmaker Christian Petzold. And uh, I'm a huge fan of this filmmaker. I think his last three films, Barbara, Phoenix, and Transit, are all, like, great or close to it, you know? Uh, I actually think Phoenix is, like, one of the masterpieces of the last 10 years of, of cinema. And in this one... Uh, 
This one I don't think is quite quite as strong as those films, but I love the way that Petzl puts together a movie so much that I think it's still very much worthwhile. It's basically a love triangle about this historian in, in Berlin who is torn between two men, this man who dumped her recently, and the sort of new love of her life. And um, if you know anything about European mythology, you might get a little bit ahead of the film and, and realize that there might be some, there might be a little bit more to this woman than meets the eye. I did find it kind of a little bit disappointingly straightforward, but at the same time, I do think Petzold, the way that he puts together a movie, just the, the economy of his filmmaking, he never wastes a shot. He creates, uh, and he can create this sense of unease without really pushing it in a way. Like it's, it's never that the film is instructing you to feel, you know, we're not getting like this, we're not getting these groaning violins or something. The movie is not like going overboard, trying to put you on E, uh, like, uh, to sort of fray your nerves or anything, but he through through very subtle technique sort of cues you that there is a there's something sinister going on in this film. Um, and the yeah, film I is say, I will say if you don't want to get ahead of yourself uh, ahead of the film, don't Google the title of the film um, because yeah, I yeah. certainly <laughs> did that and it was like ooh, which makes me very intrigued. So if it doesn't sound interesting to you, maybe do Google it and, and it yeah. will. But otherwise, uh, go in if you want to be surprised. Don't even Google the title. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very economical. It's a, it's, it's like nine, it's like basically 90 minutes. Most of his films are pretty short. And I, I, Patrick, I'm not one of those people who subscribes to the every movie should be 90 minutes. I'm, I'm not in that crowd. I think there are lots of movies that are very long and very worthwhile at their length. But I would say that if you are one of those people who believes that most movies should be like a tight 90 or something, that Petzold is the filmmaker to best make your case because he just... He does so much with so little time. Well, I mean, you really can tell a fantastic story in the amount of time. And, and obviously, we've seen longer movies that, that are worthwhile. But uh, this just, you know, we still get the um, the hard DVDs from Netflix just because you can get anything and everything. Um, mm-hmm. And so we still get those delivered. And we had Crawl, the alligator horror movie, came in the mail this weekend. <laughs> and my my husband joked or or said seemingly truthfully that, because I was like, oh, we can watch it a little bit later tonight. And he goes, well, it is three hours long. And he was like, my face <laughs> dropped because I was like, there's no, what, like, why? No, no. And and he was like, no, no, no. It's like barely 90 minutes. And, and it was great. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, so, but, but it's I just would a love testament to see and- a three hour killer alligator movie. I would just, I would want to know what they would be filling that time with, you know? That's true. All right. Well, maybe that can be our side project. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dowd, thank you so much for for joining us and kind of giving us the rundown. And of course, this is not, as you mentioned, not everything that you saw. You did fantastic dispatches uh, that you can find on avclub.com, as well as the rest of Dowd's film analysis and work uh, across the verticals on avclub.com. But thank you so much for joining us now. Dowd is going to go on his way and probably take a nap, which is (laughs) well-deserved. But we are not done here on Push the Envelope. Coming up now, you would recognize him from the West Wing, Psych, Doubt, Ballers, Suits, Black Monday, and even Muppet Babies. He can currently be seen on HBO Max's A West Wing Special to Benefit When We All Vote, which just dropped on that streaming service. Please welcome to Push the Envelope, Dulé Hill. Thanks so much for joining us, Dulé. I'm a huge West Wing fan, so I've been super excited about this special, which I know we're not supposed to call reunion special, uh, so we won't do that. I know Aaron Aaron Sorkin has been very clear on that. Um, right, it's not a reunion. You just revisit some of the dialogue with familiar faces. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
you know, obviously the, the West Wing cast has gotten together over the years, or at least most of the cast has gotten together over the years. You've done um, some, you were all were involved in previous political campaigns and, and raising awareness and that kind of stuff. But what made this the right time to do something at this grand of a scale for you guys? I think uh, where we are as a society, I mean, I think democracy has been challenged. I, I think in the last election, there were a lot of people who were left on the sidelines. And I think it's important for people to get engaged, use their voice and use their vote to determine the, the direction of the nation. And yes, we have in the, in the past, we've done things together as, I guess, segments of the cast. But this is the first time we've actually had the entire cast with Aaron Sorkin at the helm and Thomas Sami at the helm really leading, leading the charge. So this is definitely a, something different than we've ever done before. But the reason why is because of why I think where we are as a nation. And it's very important for us to have all hands on deck to make sure that our country reflects what we want it to be. And when you, when you got the call, like, hey, we're thinking of doing this, what went through your head in terms of like looking back and getting to kind of redo a script that you all had already done? I mean, I was, for, for myself, it was, it was excitement. I've always felt that the words, Aaron Sorkin's words, have, they're timeless. I was honored to do them back then. But to be able to now, 20 years later, just being able to look through the lens of experience and to approach the same piece of material, the same dialogue, it was exciting for me. I think, uh, you know, it, when I first started The West Wing, I was maybe 23, 24 years old, something like that. And now I'm 45. So to be able to get back together with what I call the West Wing family, because they really are my my family, it was pure, pure excitement and joy. Looking forward to uh, to step back into it. And, you know, and the voice of The West Wing was, I felt, has always been powerful. It has always been a, a shining light that has challenged ourselves as citizens, as individuals, but also challenged America as a whole to be the best version of herself. And to be able to come back now and approach it again, again, through the lens of experience of all of what we've gone through. We've gone through uh, the Bush years, we've gone through the Obama years, and now we're in this Trump era. I think being able to have the words come to life again, I think uh, is powerful, is poignant, and is needed. Did you all have conversations about how you were tackling these characters because like you said like your your age is different now than charlie was when the script was written are you were you all approaching this as though this existed in that time or were you or were you taking into consideration the fact that you Dulay, are a, a much older man now than you were when you were playing charlie I, I guess what mentality were you all trying to enter into when playing these characters again there wasn't a lot of talk about how we're approaching the characters because when you're working with Martin Sheen and Allison Janney, <laughs> I mean, uh, Richard Siff, Brad Whitford, you know, they're seasoned professionals. They know they know what, what they're doing and they know these characters with, like the back of their hand. So, I mean, uh, I think there was a trust given to everyone to to be able to put back on the, the clothes and step back into the character. Uh, for myself, I didn't try to play Charlie as a 23-year-old. I'm, I am Charlie. That's how I stepped into it. And I didn't take away my gray hairs or anything like that. So I, I approached him as as Charlie now in the same position. And, I, and as I was saying before, as Aaron Sorkin's words to me are timeless. So it didn't need to say, well, this is this is in the early 2000s. It, was, it didn't really have any bearing because the message still rings true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, there may be some things in there that might be, I have to go back and actually listen to it, that might have to do with the actual time of that period, but I don't think so. I, don't, I think it. I think it didn't really matter. The episode that we did really could be happening right now. And I, 
I think that was more a more powerful way of, of doing it, of just telling the story as is and letting it live for what it is. One element that is different is obviously we tragically lost John Spencer um, and you all have had Sterling K. Brown step into the role of Leo McGarry. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what it was like welcoming him into the West Wing family, as you put it. Uh, it was great to have Sterling join us. I'm, not, I'm a big fan of Sterling K. Brown. I think he's a phenomenal artist, a gifted actor. And I, I don't think there's someone more suited to step into the role that John Spencer so wonderfully created. I think John Spencer would be honored and proud to know that Sterling stepped in his shoes for, for this short period of time. Um, it was great. I said, I've, I've loved Sterling's work over the years and I've, and I've known Sterling over the years, but I've wanted to look forward to being able to actually share the stage and the screen. So this was actually, <laughs> this was actually a, a double whammy. I was able to share the stage and the screen with, with Sterling on this, on this show. And hopefully this is the, the first of many. He's, he's a, you know, he's a gift. He's, he's a really a brilliant, a brilliant artist and he stepped into it and knocked it out the park. He, he really didn't miss a beat. Well, all of you all uh, seem to have not missed a beat um, from everything we've seen so far. Uh, so it's it's super exciting. We're going to shift gears now and and head into our 11 questions franchise, which Avid AV Club readers will know instantly. We ask the same 11 questions of everyone that gets interviewed. We reset the questions every year. It's a, actually a really fun conversation in the office of deciding what's going to make the list since we have to use okay. them for 12 months. But uh, I will I will warn you. A lot of these are very random. Um, so okay. uh, just go just go with your first instinct here. The first one is: uh, if you made a candle, what would it smell like? Mm, lavender. All right. It, is lavender a thing that you use around the house a lot, or where does lavender come from? There. Uh, I'll say a couple of things. I'll say one: lavender because Belinda likes her men to shine. That's for a very select group of people who might get the reference and may may not. Two. Lavender is very relaxing. I love the smell of lavender. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a calming scent. And I think we can use more calming energy throughout the world as a whole. I mean, it certainly uh, it would help my blood pressure go down. You see? <laughs> All right. Number two, what's your favorite album from high school? Thriller, Michael Jackson. You didn't even have to hesitate. Well, you know, I, I wasn't in high school, though. Was I in high school when I came out? I mean, I guess Thriller is a... A timeless thing. I guess I'd have to say more like bad. You said high school. Yeah. Yeah, because bad was more like the the bad was in the late eighties. Yeah, but I mean, any of the ones that you like, you could you could you could have liked. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I still like thriller. I still okay. like thriller. Thriller was right. in the early eighties, but I still like thriller. Yeah, you that's know, totally fine. Michael was the man. I love it. Did you did you ever like do uh, like school performance? I, like I know we had like every kids every talent show had like three Michael Jackson performances because he was yeah. So you know I didn't ever do a Michael Jackson performance. I actually did a in middle school we had a talent show and it was the, it was the first and last one that I did because I started doing this. Now we're di- diverging a little bit, but I started doing uh, I danced professionally on Broadway from the age of ten. So in middle school we had a talent show during our you know our lunch period. It was three different lunch periods and we had three different talent shows. And I tap danced because I did a show called The Tap Dance Kid before and I, I was a tap dancer. I ended up winning all three talent shows. So that was the last talent show that I did. So I never I, I never got a chance to step up my Michael Jackson game. Even though, I, you know, I, I, I do a pretty good, uh, I do a pretty good one. Though. I like it. Uh, but you're a little bit of a ringer to go in there and, and get to tap there. So I like it. I like it, though. Yeah. I'm so glad you remember to on the win. Out after that. After that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, all right. Number three. Uh, what conspiracy theory do you think is the most plausible? <laughs> the conspiracy theory that I think 
is the most plausible. Uh, well, definitely not Pizzagate. Definitely not that. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> I'll that. Say, yeah. I'll probably say probably, uh, oh, you know, UFOs, I think is probably plausible. That, thing, I, that, that I think is definitely plausible. There's some something out there. It's, it's a vast, vast world so far. Where we think that we're the center of the universe, but we're really not. It's a vast world out there. And I, I think it's plausible that there's something out there. Like there's so many planets and galaxies. It's very plausible that there is some other thing out there, some other group of beings who are living their life, having their version of a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always said it's very self-centered to think that we could be the only ones. Like there's gotta be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's I think uh you know, that's what, that's just what humanity is. It's like, oh, no, it's only us. Well, okay. Okay. Uh, you, know, you know, another one that I think could be uh, plausible, which, you know, I, I don't think that it is, but I think it could be plausible, is the man is the man on the moon. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Let's I, get it. I think that's plausible. You know, how do we know? That's, there's a big moon and there's always a dark side. Especially, like, way back then, way back when, when it happened. It's not like now we have so much technology. We don't. We don't know. And have we? I don't. And we we have not been back there, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, we've gone back a couple of times. They've said there's oh. apparently there's apparently a lot of human excrement left there because they dump everything that they don't want to bring back. Uh, so now, really? so we may have created that extraterrestrial life now because of the bacteria. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that would be funny, and that would probably make the most sense out of all. That probably <laughs> isn't a conspiracy theory. <laughs> there we go. We were the ones that created the alien life. You dumbass did it. <laughs> the next Marvel movie. There you go. There you go. Um, the fourth one is actually kind of West Wing related. Um, what was the first time you were disillusioned by politics? Ooh, I, I would say the first time that I was disillusioned by politics probably was Gore Bush. Because just the hanging way it played chads. out. Say it again. Those hanging chads. The hanging chads and how how much it went through the courts and it was really about trying to to not let votes count. They were looking for how can we discard these votes. It was it was shocking to me, and I was you know I was still a young man at the time and getting more into this whole political thing because really leading up to leading up to that, I oftentimes thought that politics was a was a big joke. But that was the first time I said, you know what, let me start really paying attention and getting involved. And then I got involved, and when I saw how it played out, not that not that the person who I campaigned for didn't win, it wasn't so much that because I think that's what democracy is. It was how they systematically made the effort to discard votes. And that same mind has carried itself through to even where we are today. It's about trying to disenfranchise people, keep people on the outside, instead of getting people to get involved. That is still challenging to to my mind. But instead of instead of now, instead of me letting it uh get me to turn off, it only lights a fire inside of me to say no, I know that this movement is out there to get people not involved. So we just have to overcome that with overwhelming force of engagement. And that's why I appreciate you even doing this West, this West Wing special and collaborating with When We All Vote. But it's about getting people involved. That's the only way that this country will ring true to who she says she is, is when we all get involved. And not just when it comes to presidential elections, but when it comes to local community elections too. Who's on your school board? Let's get involved. Who's the sheriff? Who's the DA? Let's get involved. That's how we start to make a difference in our homes, in our communities, in our country at large. Yeah, I, I remember there's a West Wing episode in which Bartlett gets obsessed with who's uh, up for school board at his, his daughter's old district. So that's very, very true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, number five is who would you call if you need to 
help burying a body? Uh, Jasmine Simon. <laughs> She's my wife. <laughs> That's fair. I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask why, but uh, but clearly, I think I think the reasons are evidence there. The trust is there. <laughs> It's a good yeah, sign yeah. for your marriage that that's who you would call. Yeah, I would definitely. I'm like, uh, I need your help in burying this body. Yeah, that <laughs> she's definitely the one that I would that I would call. Yeah. Really? <laughs> All right. Number seven is uh, if proximity to your industry was a moot point, where would you most like to live and why? Ooh, for me, probably somewhere in the Caribbean because I'm an island boy. Like I love, I love the beach. I love rum. I love the sun. I love uh, just the the I love the energy of the of the Caribbean. Maybe maybe there, yeah. I don't think probably there. That would be I mean, that would be. You sold me. Yeah. Yep. No, that would that would be it for me. That's my final answer. You know what? That's my final answer. Good. <laughs> uh, uh, number eight. Uh, how did you learn about the birds and the bees? Ooh, that's a good question. Probably my older brother. Probably. I don't really actually remember how I learned about them. My older brother, school friends. My you know. I don't really recall my folks, my parents talking to me about it like that. Do you, do you remember learning it at a particularly young age or do you feel like you learned it at the same time everyone else did? Because I know I I remember like finding out about it. I was in like kindergarten and the bus we rode had like middle schoolers on it and they were talking about like I, I feel like I was way younger than I should have been. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like it was at, I don't know what the a regular time is, but I feel like it was somewhere like in fifth grade or something like that. For the generation of cousins that I, my family was very close growing up. We were all in New Jersey. And I was one of the younger ones of the wave of cousins. So I always heard about things a lot younger than I think a lot of other people because I had all my older cousins and they were, you know, talking about it and doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right. Number nine, is, what's the pettiest hill you're willing to die on? <laughs> the pettiest hill that I'm willing to die on. Oh, that's a good question. And then, man, and I'm completely blanking out right now. And I know there's something. And I know that when I get off this call, I'm going to be like, dang, you know? <laughs> we can come I'm back really... to it. If we can come back yeah. to it if you, if you think of something by the end of the conversation. Uh, yeah. All right. Number 10 is what pop culture or art do you turn to when you've had a bad day? Oh, tap dancing. All right. That's awesome. Yep. I, I call it a Murphy floor. I have a piece of wood in my garage that actually folds up and fastens on the wall. So then whenever I want to dance, I pull my car out and bring it down. It's like a Murphy bed, but a dance floor. And if I had a bad day, I put on my tap shoes. That's, 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 that's all the solace that I need. Now, did you give it the name, the Murphy dance floor or tap floor? Did yes. You? Okay. I like that. Yeah. yeah. When we were, when we were moving, moving to the house, I was, Telling the the builder, I said, I want I want a Murphy floor. And he was like, a, a what? A Murphy floor? You know, like a Murphy bed? I want my dance floor to be like a Murphy floor. That's how we're going to maximize the space. Because I don't want right. to have a floor there that I can't use the garage. I want to be able to put my car in, but I'm going to be able to put my car out, let it come down. I like it. Well, clearly you're putting it to good use. All right, question number 11. If you could find out the day you were going to die, would you want to know? Ooh, I think so. Yes, I think so. Do you feel like it would make you, would you change things knowing it or would you just want to know? Yeah, I think I would just want to know. I don't think it would change things. I really do try my best to cherish moments, to appreciate moments, to understand that tomorrow is not promised. I try not to have petty disagreements and <laughs> die on petty hills <laughs> because I know that 
this could be the end. For example, and I'm kind of going off course a little bit, but when I was 15, my best friend was shot and killed in the Bronx. And for he was, I was doing a show on Broadway. He was supposed to, his name was Hassan Tatum. He was supposed to come uh, see me and he didn't because he got caught up. He was just got his new car and he was, I'm coming down. He called to pay the phone. You know, I beeped him and he called me back. I'm like, yeah, I'm coming down. He never came. So for about a week, I didn't talk to him. And one of my other good friends came by the house and spent the night. And he was like, have you spoken to Hassan? I said, nah, man, I'm going to call him next week. He's supposed to come by the day and he didn't. And three times that night, he told me I should call Hassan. And I said, man, go to sleep. I'm, I'm going to call him next week. Next week never came. A few days later, he was shot and killed. And it broke my heart. Really, you know, as my best friend, my brother, that I was being so petty about something so simple. And I didn't get a chance to speak to him again. So from that moment, I've learned to not take moments for granted, to not die on petty hills, to be able to move beyond myself, because this could be the last moment. If, if, me, if this is the last time you and I are going to talk, how do I want it to be? That's why even in the midst of an argument, I can still tell somebody, I love you. I appreciate you. I disagree with you and you're getting on my nerves, but I do love you because if God forbid it was to be the end, I don't want it to be that my last words to you were fuck you. Well, we need more of that in the world. So I appreciate you putting yeah. that energy out there. <laughs> And that was a beautiful story, which leads me into our, our final moment, which is, uh, as I mentioned, we get to have you ask a question of the next person. Um, but first, you have to answer the question of the person before you, which was, um, they've been grinding their teeth uh, at night lately, uh, and they want to know mm-hmm. how to stop doing that. Do you have any remedies for jaw pain, or do you suffer from that as well? I do understand. Tell this person, I can relate. I understand. You know, sometimes it just gets tight in the middle of the night. The mouth guard. I went to my dentist. They put they they did the little mold thing. You know, they put the little thing around your teeth, and it tastes kind of nasty, but they get it, and they go and they make a a mouth guard that is like fashioned for your teeth. It has been a life changer for me. It is definitely my jaw being tight. It's helped my teeth so that I stop grinding. Go to your dentist. Bill and Galula will be getting this information. I appreciate it. All right, to close this out, you've got to set us up with a question for the next person. Now we don't know who it is, so uh, keep that in mind. But but what would you want somebody to answer in line with these questions? These questions are: How do you continuously stay fit in the midst of this pandemic? That's a good one. We will make sure you get the answer, Mr. Dulé Hill. We really right. appreciate you joining us. And I have a, I have a, another question I want to add to that too. In terms of getting fit. What do you like to drink during this pandemic? What is a great recipe of a good, a really good drink? Because I do like to have a drink at the end of the day. What is a very good drink with uh, with with bourbon, with, with some type of dark liquor? All right. Yeah. I, I love it. I've personally gone with the boxed rosé wine right now. Uh, I the boxed wine too. Yeah, Trader Joe's has a good option. So it, it, Trader Joe's does. Uh, uh, Boda Box. Boda Box is a great box wine. I'm just telling you, anybody out there, Boda Box. You can get it at Rite Aid. And Trader Joe's Boda Box. You can check out Dulé Hill in a West Wing special to benefit When We All Vote, available now on HBO Max, and check out all of our coverage of the special at avclub.com. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. You can find me on Twitter at, at PatrickGomezLA, and of course, all of our content on avclub.com. Until next week, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.